Uh, turn in your Bibles with me to John 11. And before we get started with our scripture reading, uh, let's go into a word of prayer. Now, Father, give us this time in your word today. Give us this moment, Lord, to see you for who you are, to who you've revealed yourself to be, Lord. Keep me free from error as I preach your word and prepare all the hearts today to hear this word because it's a word that needs to be heard today because it's been given by you. I thank you for your son and I thank you for his revelation as the resurrection and the life. In his name I do pray, amen. In John 11, this is a very common, very familiar story for everyone, the death of Lazarus and his impending resurrection. We see Jesus forming a line of thought that is not very common to us. That line of thought, which we're about to parse out and look at, runs very contrary, not only to just us in the 21st century, but us as Americans as well, because he does not seek Lazarus's comfort one bit. He does not seek Mary's comfort. He does not seek Martha's comfort in the pursuit of his end goal that we see here. We always ask God, how long am I going to do this? In Isaiah 6, God gives Isaiah a mission, go and preach the word, but they're not going to understand and they're not going to hear and it's not going to be fruitful for you to do this. And Isaiah's very next question is, how long, Lord? And if you know the story well, God tells Isaiah, until the houses are empty and the land is desolate, till there's no one remaining, is how long you are to do this mission I've sent you on. Which is not a very comforting thought. And we sometimes like to play 21 questions with God. Like a child plays with their, with their parent, as I'm starting to learn now with Sadie. And I can talk about her because she's not in here now. Um, God's sovereignty and God's end goal is not limited by what questions we ask and why we ask them or even how much pain that we're under when we ask them. Jesus died asking a question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God himself died asking that question. So when we question, sometimes we're left hanging on a cross or hanging upside down on a cross like Peter or being thrown off the Temple Mount like James, the brother of Jesus. And so if you're looking for a comfortable message today, a, a loving God word today, you'll find that here. But what you're really going to find is this reality that John reveals in his gospel and that God gave him to reveal through the person of Jesus. In Luke 22, when Jesus is taken in the Garden of Gethsemane, he tells the mob this, When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour, hour, in the power of darkness. He told the evil, he told the mob, you get one hour, and then I'm coming back. One hour, and that's it. 
So stand with me, please, as we look at this passage in John chapter 11. And we're going to focus, and I want you to lock in on three words through here. Okay, or three concepts. We're looking for God's love, we're looking for death, and we're looking for glory. Let's read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Verse 6. So... Highlight, we're going to talk about that word in a second. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. This is God's word. You may be seated. And add in there, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was, parentheses, so that Lazarus could die. Because when Jesus arrives on the scene in Bethany four days after Lazarus has died, of course, Lazarus is dead. Jesus waited two days longer for this. So we look through this passage and we see that Jesus receives news of Lazarus' suffering, which as we see in verse 14 later on, he already knew was happening. He knew that Lazarus was sick. He knew that Lazarus was going to die. He tells the disciples so quite plainly, because they didn't get it the first time when he said that he had fallen asleep. Lazarus' family, Mary and Martha, they send a plea, and I want to think, and this, the Bible's not clear on this, so I want to throw that disclaimer out, that Mary and Martha and Lazarus were the last remaining members of their family. Their parents had probably already died, because they're not mentioned. They were at home, the parents weren't mentioned, so one can assume that their parents were already dead. And in first century Judea, when the man dies in the family and there's women left in the house, it was up to faith. Lazarus was their last lifeline to stability in their life, to employment, to, to a paycheck, to a, to a wage. And so when they send this message to Jesus, Jesus, please come quick. Lazarus is dying and we need him to not die. And we need him to be healed. Jesus stays two days longer. According to verse 5, he stayed two days because he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We see him kind of, kind of framing this discussion through verse 6, 5, and 4, if you look at it backwards, which we'll get to here in a second. We see John, and we, I asked you to kind of note this here, we see John write about Jesus' love for Mary and for Martha and for Lazarus three times in this passage. In verse 2, where John alludes to the story of Mary pouring the oil on Jesus' feet and wiping it with her hair. You don't just do that for someone because you think they're a good teacher. Or you don't just do that for someone because you think they're uh, morally solid or stable. Mary loved Jesus and Jesus loved Mary. And he mentions it two chapters early. It happens in chapter 12 of this book. We're in chapter 11. So one chapter, excuse me. I'm not a mathematician. 
but he wants to show the striking love that Mary and Jesus have for each other in allowing this thing to happen. Look at verse 3. Whom you love, the one whom you love is ill. Jesus loved Lazarus the way, and the sisters knew that love that Jesus had for Lazarus. They were friends. He loved him. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. These aren't people. These aren't pawns that he's dealing with. He has an intimate relationship with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And so when he carries out in verse 4, we read, but when Jesus heard it, he said this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory, circle, of God. That word so is a cause and effect word in the Greek. One statement leads to another. So when we see the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it, one thing leads to another. We see Jesus constructing this line of thought when he's talking to the disciples. So if we go back to verse 6, he stays two days longer, so, that word so, that Lazarus will die. Because, verse 5, he loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and he does all this because, verse 4, this illness is for the glory of God so that Jesus may be glorified through it. And that's going to be kind of where we stay for a minute because that is a tough thing for us to handle. Um, the last few weeks have been tough in our community. Uh, we have a student who lost her mother, and nine months before that, she lost her father and her sister all to COVID. Her and her brother are remaining. And what do you say to that? Within a year, she lost everyone she lived with. Her brother's living in Paul's Valley, like, lost everybody. That's uh, another student at our school just lost her father Friday to COVID. What do you say to that? Her and her mom are left without a husband and a father. Mary and Martha left without a brother. Many of you are left without people through this last year and beyond before. Tragic ends, things that don't make sense. How do we deal with that? And so the question we're going to look at today is how do we reconcile God's love and God's glory together? How do we see good when we lose someone? How do we see good when someone is ill? Or how do we see good when just in an instant. Uh, a friend of mine lost his wife not a month ago in a car accident in the city. They've got a four-year-old daughter. He's my age. She's Amber's age. Just so much of things like this in John 11 that we see, just complete loss. It's an important question because if Jesus allowed his beloved Lazarus, his friend Lazarus, to go through literal death for the sake of God's glory in resurrecting him, we're going to encounter similar circumstances in the seeking of God's glory, whether on the mission field or at home. We're going to run into suffering. And it is how we approach that suffering that bears out the truth of where we are in our faith in God.
In John chapter 9, there's a similar story. Jesus is asked a question about a man who's born blind. The Pharisees ask him, who sinned that this man was born blind? John chapter 9, verse 2. And Jesus answers in the very next verse, neither it was for uh, the display of the works of God in him. He was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed. Jesus works other miracles according to his desire to see glory. And I want to say this, and I want you to understand, this is a heavy theological subject. I'm not going to use the $10 words that people use. We're going to make this very, very simple. And so I want you to remember this statement above everybody, everything else in this glory section of this speaking, that God seeks his own glory. God wants and seeks and, and makes happen his own glory. And we kind of recoil at that thought that, oh, God's kind of an egomaniac. God's about himself. He's not about us. He's about himself. That's what we think. And that is not only not the case, that's the very opposite of what I'm saying. Let's look at a few verses here. And we'll go through this part a little quick. When we go back to the Exodus, Israel has left Egypt. They get to the mountain where the Ten Commandments are being written with Moses. Moses comes back down with the tablets, and what does he see? Aaron and the Israelites have constructed a golden calf to worship because Moses took too long. God's anger burned at Israel, and he was going to just kill them all in that moment. Moses argues back at God, but God, your name will be slandered in Egypt because you took us out here just to kill us. Your name will be slandered in Egypt. Exodus chapter 14, verse 18, the Egyptians, and this is God speaking, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And as we know, this exodus leads to the salvation of Rahab and her family in Joshua 2, because they heard about the glory of the Lord at the Red Sea. Rahab feared God, and the, Jer the people of Jericho feared God because of that event 40 years earlier. Isaiah 43, 6-7, God says, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, he repeats that twice in Hebrew, that's very significant. I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Second Kings 19.34, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Ezekiel 20.14, but I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. John chapter 5, 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? John 7, 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And this is Jesus speaking. And in him there is no falsehood. John 12, 27 through 28. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. 
But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And then lastly, Ephesians chapter 1, 4 through 6. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved Jesus. So what should we now say about God's glory-seeking behavior? This is not an isolated incident. There's numerous other texts in Scripture that highlight this very concept of God seeking his own glory at infinite cost to himself and at cost to us as well. Rahab would tell us that God seeking his glory is good. Her family, her children, her father, her mother, her family were saved alive when Jericho fell because of God's glory, because she heard about it and she believed. And she in faith acted. And she's in the Hall of Fame of Faith. She's in Jesus' bloodline. She was appointed that glory. His glory for her and her family was the highest good that could have happened. The highest good in the entire universe is that God makes his glory known and that we make it known as well. The highest good that you as a Christian can do is to make God's glory known. And some of you may say, what about the cross? What about Jesus' death? Aren't we supposed to make that known first? Aren't we supposed, that's the believe and repent thing, right? Believe in the cross, repent of your sins, yea, you're saved and you've done your missionary work. Let me put it like this. If I were to exalt myself and say that, quote, I will exalt myself because I, Stephen, am God and King, kind of egomaniac, right? kind of weird. We wouldn't like that person. We don't like haughty people. We don't like people who have a lot of pride. But that's substituting a couple of words. That's Psalm 145. Where God says, I will exalt myself because I am God and King. God seeks His glory. And it's to the benefit of of everyone, and you can go read Romans 8 to find out how it's to the benefit of everyone. But God seeking his glory is to the benefit of everyone in this room and everyone outside these doors and everyone within the reach of my voice this morning. God is the only being in the entire universe and outside the entire universe for whom self-exaltation is a virtue, a virtue, something you want to emulate and not a sin. When God exalts himself, when God brings himself to the forefront, that is the ultimate good that he can do on our behalf. And again, we, you know, Oprah stopped believing in, in Orthodox Christianity when she found the verse that said God is a jealous God. She thought that was a sinful thing. God does things, and believe me when I say this, God does things on his level that for us would be sinful. Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5, to be angry is to commit murder. God is angry. God hates sin. He hates things. He hates Satan. 
God hates. But for him, it's the eradication of sin. And for us, it's a slight to our pride or it's a slight to, to, to our behavior. God kills. God has killed numerous people in the Old Testament. God uh, consigned all of Canaan to be slaughtered by Israel. For us, that's murder. For God, that's judgment. God plays by different rules than we play, but he set the rules for us to know and to behave by them. God does things that would be sinful for us that are not sinful for him because he does them perfect. God is jealous. It's a sin for us to be jealous, but for God, it's perfectly acceptable to be jealous. Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate show of God's glory in history, and without it, no one is saved. There's your cross statement. Jesus is the glory of God on display on the cross, being slaughtered for our sin, like a lamb. That is the glory of God, to save the entire universe from its own sin, to, to sanctify and to make holy everything by his own blood is his ultimate glory. Isaiah 43, 25, God says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. In Psalm 25, 11, he says, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Jesus' sinless life, crucifixion, and resurrection are for God's glory and our salvation, and they can work together. We don't have to take one or the other. It is God's glory and our salvation that killed Jesus. The most basic problem Jesus' death solves is the demonstration of God's righteousness and God's judgment against sin. Think back to Romans 1.18, very famous passage. We like to think of it as for the love of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. What is, what is the actual word there? It's not love. What's the actual word there? Anyone remember? Romans 1.18. His wrath is revealed on ungodliness and unrighteousness. Who by their unrighteousness who, of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's God's wrath that first gets displayed on the cross before his love can. And it happens all at the same time. At the cross, we see God's holiness against sin. We see his wrath against sin. We see his love for humanity being played out all at that theater on Calvary, all at the same time. And we have to hate our sin. We have to grieve over our sin in every aspect. God's wrath had to be poured out against our sins laid on Jesus before his love towards us could be extended to us through Jesus' imputed, given righteousness. A.W. Tozer puts God's utter hatred of sin like this in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. God's wrath is his utter intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys. He hates iniquity as a mother hates the diphtheria or polo that would destroy the life of her child. God saves the world, saves Christians through his glory-advancing work. And it's necessary to spread 
this gospel through all areas of the world. To seek our glorious sin, but for God to seek His glory is the revelation of Jesus Christ to everybody. And if we're about the Lord's work in the Great Commission, that's what we must do, is send God's glory to all areas of the world. And if you can't go, you must send. And if you can't send, then you must work in your local area. And if you can't even do that, then we need to talk about your faith because that's not grounded in the actual Word of God. Remember in John 7, 18, which we, we looked at here a minute ago, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his glory, Jesus says. And what authority is there spoken higher than God's? If Jesus speaks on his own authority, Jesus seeks his glory. And if Jesus seeks his glory, God seeks his glory. And if God seeks his glory, it's for our good. In Romans 8, 28, all things work together. That passage, that Romans 8 passage, embodies God's glory-seeking activity. John Piper, who's a Baptist preacher, has a saying, and he's, he's based his ministry on this, and this is a John Edwards thing as well. God is most glorified in us. God gets the most glory from us when we are most satisfied and most content and most joyful and most happy in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Where's your satisfaction level with God today? Are we at a two? Are you a Texas fan? Are you at a one right now? Are you an OU fan at a 20 right now? Where's your satisfaction? I told you I was going to get it in. Where's your satisfaction level at with God? Are you focusing, as Peter did, on the waves, or are you focusing on the Jesus in front of you? Where's your satisfaction level? And if we look back at our passage in John 11, because we're going through 44 verses very, very quickly here. Mary and Martha's satisfaction level of Jesus when he arrives at Bethany four days after Lazarus died is not very high. Let's look now at Martha's reaction. This is John chapter 11, 21 through 27. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mark bookmarked that. 22, but even now that, I, that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives believes in me and shall never die. Do you believe this? 27, she said to him, yes, Lord. Remember this part right here, because we're going to come back to this. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So if you know anything about Judaism, especially in the first century, Jews have no concept of a mid-history resurrection. That's why Jesus is such an affront to Judaism, because there is a general resurrection at the end of days. All the Jews will be resurrected. God's chosen people will be resurrected. But nothing in history, mid-history, is, is a resurrection. There are miracles uh, in the Old Testament. Elijah does miracle, or Elisha, excuse me, uh, the, and the Shulamite woman raises her son from the dead. 
there are things like that that happen. Those are miracles. Those are so far off from where we're at right now. Martha has no concept whatsoever of what Jesus is about to do. She's not on the same wavelength with Jesus. And she couldn't be. They have no concept of a mid-history, you know, 3 AD resurrection. There's nothing in their theology that allows for that. And so Jesus frames his response to her as a teacher and as someone who's, who's going to approach her systematically, A, B, C, D, alphabet, just lines it all out. How many times do we, without all the information, and we do this a lot, make determinations on what is in our best interests? Well, I should have played the lotto a lot, right? Or uh, I should have taken that job. Or I should have tried harder for that promotion at work. Or I should have, uh, I should have eaten better then I wouldn't be where I'm at now. We think we know based on information. And oftentimes, and we find this in politics, it's called fighting against your own interest. If a politician can get someone to fight against their own interest in favor of his, they've won the election. Oftentimes, as humans, without all the information, we fight against our own interests. We reel against the one, God, who controls everything, who sees everything, who has all the cards for everything. And in verse 22, Martha, look back at verse 22 real quick. But even now, this is Martha, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Whatever you, Jesus, ask from God, God will give you, which is a very true statement. But she misses the bigger point until the end of the, the, the thing here, when he says, I'm the resurrection of life. He is God. He is. He's God. And instead of seeing him as God in that moment, he, he, she sees him as a God-powered human, maybe a prophet. Who do you say I am? Well, some people say you're Elijah, and some people say you're Moses, and some people say you're Ezekiel. Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. You're, the, you're God coming to the world. Very good, Simon Barjona. Very good. Martha doesn't see Jesus for who he is in that moment. She sees him as a prophet, not as the Christ. She sees him as a, as a man, not a God-man, not fully God and fully man, just man. A powerful man, but a man. And so Jesus has to teach and show Martha, again, systematically, A, B, C, D, who he is. And this is not the last time that Jesus has to do that either. If you look further, or if you look in Luke chapter 10, uh, Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet being taught, and Martha is working in the kitchen, making sure everything's prepared and right and straight and everything else. And service is great, but Jesus tells Martha when she complains to him, I'm not going to take Mary's portion away. She's chosen the better portion. Why don't you come sit down and relax at the Savior's feet? 
and learn from the Messiah. She's so stuck in what she's doing, and she's so stuck in her theology and traditions and everything else, that she doesn't see Jesus. He's right in front of her. She doesn't see God. He's right in front of her. And when Jesus tells her that he is the resurrection and the life, in Martha's lowest point, Jesus is teaching about who he is to her. And I pray that God would give us the grace to understand who he is according to his word. Because it's Jesus' word that he gives Martha. Let's move on to Mary, verse 32, further down. Now when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, remember this from earlier, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same exact statement as Martha. Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary says the same thing in tears, falling at his feet. And so we see not only two different reactions to the circumstances, but we see Jesus also respond differently to each sister. Let's look, verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved, bookmark, in his spirit, and greatly troubled, bookmark that as well. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept, shortest verse in the Bible. So the Jews said, see how he loved him in verse 37. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man, remember John chapter 9, he had just done that the chapter earlier, also have kept this man from dying. So we can see that comment in verse 37 isn't a wondering, like, couldn't he have done this? It's a mocking. Well, he healed the blind man last chapter. Why can't he do this now? He must not be the Christ. He must not be who he says he is. So in tears, Mary asked the same question. Why, Lord? Why, Lord? And Jesus responds in a completely different way. Instead of teaching Mary, what does he do? He cries with her. He weeps with her at the tomb. I have a very, very high view of God's sovereignty. This did not surprise Jesus at all. In fact, I would even dare say that when he was at the wedding in Cana, and maybe Lazarus and Mary and Martha were all there as well. The Bible doesn't say that. Just thinking out loud. Jesus, seeing Lazarus dancing and having fun, probably even saw this coming two years down the line. God is completely sovereign over every atom, over every circumstance. He knows everything that's going to happen. Nothing surprises him. There's no new information apart from God. There's not a breaking news ticker on God's TV. He doesn't watch the news. He doesn't need to. He ordains the news. He appoints the news. He makes the news happen. In Isaiah, um, politicians and leaders and kings are like water to him, and he moves them how he will. He holds all the cards. He pulls all the strings. He does all the things. He allows the evil to happen, and he ordains the good to come. And he works the evil into good, and he weaves Satan's best plans for hurting people into good things later down the line. God is 100% sovereign over his creation. Not a thing happens without his say-so. 
And so we might be tempted to think, well, this is just a, a manipulation by Jesus. He let Lazarus die, now he's going to reveal his glory, and he's just completely emotionally divested from the entire situation. You know what was going to happen. But in verse 35, we don't see that. We don't see that happening. He's not emotionally divested. He weeps with Mary. He mourns with her. He's heartbroken. He's greatly troubled or greatly disturbed and deeply troubled or some combination of those words without looking at my Bible. He's hurt. He's mourning. He's sick to his stomach. We can always be tempted to think God is just a robot working in heaven, pulls the lever, something happens, pulls the other lever, something else happens. But we don't, we don't see that in the Scripture. In Isaiah 53, this man of sorrow, acquainted with grief that Isaiah talks about in 53, is Jesus. That's a, that's a, a Jesus passage. That's a prophecy. Jesus is the man of sorrow. He is acquainted with grief. He's intimately and emotionally involved with everything that happens on earth. It's an extension of who he is. In Genesis chapter 6 through 7, we see that emotional investment in his creation. So when we see Jesus weep in verse 35, we see it with an understanding that while he knows everything and he's completely sovereign and nothing is outside of his grasp, he's involved at every emotional level with your suffering and my suffering and everybody's suffering. His sorrow's not numbed by his power of being God. It's not. It's intensified. Because he knows the true stakes. Look at the, look at the passage real quick. In verse 33 and 38, that word deeply moved in the Greek is a word that means to insist sternly, to feel strongly, and to be indignant. Why, what would make the Son of God indignant? What would deeply move him so? The word for troubled in 33. What could trouble the Son of God so? Because the word troubled in the Greek means to terrify, to disturb, or to stir up. What could stir up Jesus? What could stir up the most sovereign being in existence? Jesus is so disturbed and so troubled because he knows the actual stakes. Lazarus' sin didn't kill him. Sin, with a capital S, made Lazarus' death possible, makes disease possible. When sin entered creation in Genesis, it was a complete and utter decay of what God had created, a, a distortion. And when he sees this death of Lazarus happen, what he's looking at is he's seeing sin for what it really is, what we can't see. We see some of the outworkings of sinful behavior, but we don't know sin intimately enough to say, this is really, really, really the foundation of all suffering. The same sin that corrupted this world is the same sin that invites all sorts of disease, death, destruction, and separation. And all of that sin was soon to be laid on Jesus. All the sins of the world. If you were staring down the barrel of the gun that was about to kill you, you would be disturbed and troubled as well. And since Jesus knows the truth of sin, he knows it's going to separate him from God. 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not something that you say if you're together. For the first time in eternity, the Son and the Father were separated at the cross. An infinite payment. A total destruction of that unity that the Father and the Son had for eternity before happened on the cross. That infinite payment is what it cost to get rid of the sin that we see killing Lazarus. The sin killing our family and our friends. His feelings aren't just sentimental. He's not just empathizing with Mary. He's not just there thereing with Mary. They're oriented towards a true understanding of the destructive power of sin. So let's look at the last part, and then we'll wrap up here. 41 through 44. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. In 44, the man who had died came out with his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Just as the creation, when God creates with the word, light and darkness, water and sky, earth and trees and vegetables and all the things that we see around us today. With the word, God frees Lazarus from his tomb, resurrects Lazarus to walk amongst the living. Not as a smelly body, as Martha thought was going to happen, but as a truly resurrected individual. Jesus' words have power. Jesus' words are recorded in the Bible. In the parable of the prodigal son, the son's father cries out, Rejoice, your brother was dead and is now alive. And Jesus made Lazarus alive and he used to be dead. And I was once dead in my sin, and you were once dead in your sin if you're a Christian. And if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, you were dead in your sin. He can do the same for you if you are dead in your sin today. He can free you from that. And as Jesus calls Lazarus out of the grave to be unbound, he calls his people to be unbound from their sin, to repent and to be saved from a sinful spirit. Jesus is ready to teach us and console us and be with us just as he was with Job when Job said, though he slay me, I will hope in him. And Job later says, too, yet I will argue my ways to his face. It's okay to question God. It's acceptable to question God. But if you're questioning God like the Pharisees do in 37, that's not the right approach. Could not the man that killed the blind man also resurrect him or save him? Don't question God like that. Question God like Job. Intensifying and coming closer to God through your suffering. Because people often forget Job's sufferings were allowed by God. Satan came before God to ask permission. And so when Jesus tells the mob, you have one hour, he really means you have one hour. And that's it. And then I'm coming back. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. 
Deep in unfathomable minds of never-ending skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds ye much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, be your own interpreter now in this moment. Spirit, move in the hearts of the people here, God, to either commit, to recommit, or to be saved, God. Grant repentance to your people here today. In your name I pray. Amen.